died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good, and good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, as uh, Seth mentioned earlier, for the next few Sundays, we're going to be considering some of the parables that uh, Jesus told during the course of his earthly ministry. Uh, a parable is something of a teaching tool, one that Jesus used frequently. The idea is that he would take a difficult or complex or controversial spiritual idea, and he would make it uh, memorable and perhaps easier to understand uh, using a story. Uh, interpreting parables can be difficult. Uh, they often serve as something of a Rorschach test, uh, telling us more about the person interpreting the parable than the point that Jesus was making. But there are a few principles as we're reading parables that we can keep in mind that will serve as sort of guide rails to keep us on the right path. Let me just give you a couple of sort of interpretive helps when it comes to understanding parables. I think one principle is to not put too much stress on the details. Uh, Jesus' parables are different than his didactic teaching. So, for example, when Jesus tells his disciples that he must die and then rise three days later... That's exactly, literally, what he means. But when, in a parable, he says that there was a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen, we shouldn't necessarily think that he's speaking about a specific, literal person. Or, for example, this man only ever wore purple clothing. Right? It's, it's a story. The details are there to serve a larger point. And not every detail is meant to convey a deep uh, spiritual truth. Another principle for interpreting the parables is to look carefully at their conclusion. Oftentimes, in the parables, there is a kind of summary that Jesus gives, or uh, often a surprise that gives us a clue as to what Jesus is driving at. A third sort of principle is to, to look at the context. It's often the case that in the larger context uh, that we see around a parable, we'll get a clue as to its meaning and, and emphasis. I think that's certainly the case for the parable we're going to consider this morning that Grayson just read for us. So if you have a Bible, if you don't open up to Luke chapter 16, you see the kind of lay of the land here where we are in Luke's gospel. There at the beginning of the chapter, you have Jesus' parable of the dishonest manager. It's interesting, both that parable and the one we're going to consider this morning start with the phrase, there was a rich man. 
Right? So it seems like there may be some sort of connection between these two. But Jesus summarizes the point of that story there in verse 9, chapter 16, verse 9. The point of the parable of the dishonest manager is this. Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it, fa- when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, that's a bit of a cryptic statement, and thankfully, I don't have to explain it to you this morning. Uh, But for our purposes, you see that Jesus is thinking about money here. He calls it unrighteous wealth. That is to say, the treasure of this earth, as opposed to sort of heavenly treasure, as he calls it sometimes. He's thinking about money and its relationship to our eternal destiny. Right? He says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is thinking about money and eternity. Then in the very next verse, in Luke 16, verse 10, he teaches plainly on this topic. He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Well, Jesus, what are you talking about? Are you talking about our our work or our families? No, he keeps going. If then you've not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then we see the Pharisees' response there in verse 14 of of Luke 16. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So that's the context in which we find our parable for this morning. Jesus is teaching about the relationship between money and eternity. And he's put his finger on something that the Pharisees, the good, upright, moral, church-going religious people of his day, he's put his finger on something that's very sensitive to them. They loved money. They looked good on the outside, but, but Jesus knew their hearts. He knew there was an abominable craving deep in their soul. It's in that context that Jesus tells the story that we're going to consider today, beginning there in verse 19. And what I'd like to do is just walk through the story and try to understand its details, appreciate some of its sort of literary artistry, and then try to take away three things uh, that I think we're meant to see in the passage. So let's walk through this story. It's really a story about the, the contrast between two men. Right off the bat, Jesus, the master teacher, sets up a series of contrasts that set the scene in a dramatic way. So look how we're introduced to both of these men there, starting in verse 19. We meet the rich man. He is clothed in luxurious clothes, we're told there. Purple, very expensive in those days. He wears fine linen, soft as silk, a rarity, a real real treasure in a hot, arid climate to have sort of fine, light clothing that would breathe and, and allow you to stay cool. We read there at the end of verse 19 that he feasted sumptuously every day. He never missed a meal. This guy had a private chef. He could afford to have the best foods brought in. He must have had a large house because there in verse 20, we read that he has gates. He has a gate 
uh, at which the poor man will be left. Right, and let's face it, this guy, he's living the good life. Right? Who, who wouldn't want that? Especially if you compare his life to that of Lazarus. We meet him in verse 20. We're told that he was a poor man. That he's laid at the rich man's gate, presumably so that he could beg. In the original Greek language in which Luke wrote his gospel, that, that phrase that's translated was laid, it literally means thrown, right? Seems to indicate that Lazarus couldn't walk. He couldn't take care of himself, right? He, he had to be sort of thrown at this man's gate every day. Not only is he poor and most likely handicapped, but there at the end of verse 20, we read that he's also covered in sores, Right, he's in constant pain. There in verse 21, we see that he's desperately hungry as well. Right, he longs for the scraps that might fall from the rich man's table. Right, he's, he's not talking about the crumbs here that might sort of fall if you, if you eat messily. No, in those days, they didn't have napkins. Right, they didn't have disposable sort of paper towels to clean up with. And so they would use, oftentimes use uh, pieces of flat bread as a kind of napkin to clean their hands after a meal. And then they would just throw it on the floor. Uh, servants would then pick up those pieces of bread and sort of s- scatter them in the street for the dogs to eat. Right, there are no garbage trucks. There's no, there's no garbage disposals. And so it seems like that's what Lazarus is sort of fantasizing about eating. Right, if only he could reach out and grab a few of those scraps of used, dirty bread before the dogs ate them all. So this is the man at the gate. He's hungry, helpless, suffering, just wishing he could eat dog food. Right? It can't get worse until it does. There in the end of verse 21, we read that the dogs would come and lick his sores Presumably Lazarus is too feeble or too handicapped to shoo them away. The picture is that of utter misery. A man who longs to eat dog food, but instead he becomes dog food. It's hard to sink much lower. That's not the only difference we see between these men. There's another contrast here, but this one cuts the other way. It cuts actually in Lazarus' favor, and that is their names. Do you notice that despite his wealth, we're never told the rich man's name? That's all that he is, rich man. Nothing else is, is really important. Nothing else is to be said about him. Right? Every, everything we've noted so far points to that one fact. This guy was rich, really really rich, but nothing else is really going on. But this poor, wretched beggar at his gate is identified by name. Do you know he's the only person in any of Jesus' parables who's given a name? Right? Think about it. Think about the parable of the prodigal sons. Right? You don't, you don't know that the dad's name is Ed and the older son's name Jim and the younger son's name Bob. Right? You never learn their names. Parables don't sort of don't give people names. It's not important. So it has to be significant here that Jesus departs from his precedent in in every way, his normal practice, to tell us that this man's name was Lazarus. I think when you look at that name, you you actually see that it sheds some light on the parable. Lazarus was a nickname for Eliezer, right, which is a name that means God helps. And so you have two people in this parable. You have rich man and God helps. 
And I think that's helpful because we're not really told specifically why Lazarus receives the blessings that he receives after death and rich man doesn't. But I think when you look at their identity, if you look at what their lives seem to be based on, if you see what sort of got them through the day, perhaps you begin to understand. Lazarus, by virtue of his terrible circumstances, would have had no choice but to depend on God for his help. But for rich man, it's all about money. That's, that's who he is. That's where his help comes from. These two men couldn't have been more different. One rich, one poor, one feasting, one starving, one strong, the other crippled and covered in sores. One felt no need to share his wealth. The other had no hope except that the Lord might help him. They did have one important thing in common, though. This is a study of contrasts. These men could not be more different, but they had one thing in common, the one thing that, in fact, all human beings have in common, and that is they died. Right? Their disparate lives each came to their inevitable conclusions. Now, even in death, their deaths weren't equal. You see that there in verse 22. We're told that the poor man died. Right? Doubtlessly, he was buried in a sort of pauper's field with little sort of pomp and circumstance, little thought. We're not even told about his funeral in this parable. But the rich man dies, and it says he was buried, right? Doubtlessly a magnificent affair, professional mourners, a banquet, lengthy tributes by friends and family, right? But for our purposes, it's, it's important to notice that both of these men died and went to their eternal fates, and in those eternal fates, we see the, the radical disparity between their lives is carried on into the afterlife. These men who lived such different lives experience such different fate. But surprisingly, for Jesus' audience and perhaps for us as well, their fortunes are reversed. Even after death, their lives still could not be more different. But now Lazarus is experiencing the good life while rich man suffers. Abraham even makes that uh, explicit and clear uh, when he says there in verse 25, speaking to, to rich man, in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Right, just in case rich man can't make the connection, Abraham makes it explicit. Lazarus is buried with little notice, but we're told in verse 22 that angels came and carried him to Abraham's side. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. The language that's used there for, for being at his side is the language of, of a feast, right? the language of a banquet table. Right? Lazarus is carried off to, to recline at table with Abraham. The rich man, however, must leave all of his riches at the gate of death. He goes into the afterlife without his possessions, and we're told he goes into Hades. Now, Jesus doesn't explain what that means, but it's clearly a terrible fate. We see there in verse 23, he is said to be in torment. In verse 24, he says that he's in anguish because of the flames. In verse 28, he says that he's desperate for his brothers to avoid this same fate. Now, it's interesting. We hear no more about Lazarus, except that he's viewed now at Abraham's side. His life of torment is over, 
For him, eternity will be filled with pleasures unimaginable. In the words of Abraham there in verse 25, he will be comforted. But not so for our formerly rich friend. In the Greek now, he's referred to simply as he or him. He's no longer called the rich man, right? Because in Hades, he has no wealth. His life is one of unending misery. Now, we're not told explicitly why these two men experienced such different fates, but I think Jesus' audience probably could have pieced it together. They would have known that what the rich man did in his life, or more accurately, what he failed to do, uh, in fact, earned him his stay in Hades. You see, this ancient world was a world with no social security program, no food stamps or welfare or national health system, right? And so the poor and the lame were particularly vulnerable, particularly dependent. This is why God had told Israel that the rich must provide for the poor, because if they didn't, people would die. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are told that they must care for the poor and the needy and the vulnerable in their midst. So in Leviticus chapter 19, farmers were instructed to leave behind any wheat that fell during the harvesting process. This was to be food that the poor could come along and gather after them. Right? So if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, this, this practice saves Ruth's life. In Deuteronomy 15, Israel is told this. The Lord says to them, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. God called out the people of Israel, right? As we've been thinking about in the book of Exodus, he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Sinai. He brought them into the promised land. And his vision was that they would be an open-handed, loving people. Right, that they would share freely with those in need. And so few things in the Old Testament occasion God's anger at Israel more than their failure to provide for the poor. So let me give you just two examples from the book of Amos. In Amos chapter 4, starting in verse 1, the Lord says this, Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. In Amos chapter 8, he addresses in verse 4, those who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. And he says there in verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. You see, the Lord is not messing around. He swears by his own holiness. And so do you get the picture? that this rich man, a Jew, would have known clearly from the Old Testament that he had a responsibility to take care of Lazarus as he sat at his gate. Right? He obviously knew that Lazarus was there. Right? It's, it'd be hard to miss him every day begging at your gate. Right there in verse 24, you see the rich man, he knows Lazarus' name. Right? There is familiarity between them. But... Every indication is that he did nothing, that he took his wealth and he spent it on purple clothes and linen and sumptuous feasting. 
There's no mention of any charity, any care, any relief, any medical attention. Right? Notice that the rich man never pleads his case. He never says, look at all that I did for Lazarus. Because it seems like he never did anything. He was rich, but his riches only served himself. That's why he's in Hades. Now, the end of the parable is really a record of a conversation between the formerly rich man and Abraham. There in verse 24, he cries out in his misery, Father Abraham. Right, as a Jew, he acknowledged Abraham as the sort of father of his people. It may, perhaps he hoped that his spiritual heritage would, would somehow help him. It would count for something. Maybe he thought, surely if Abraham knew that one of his people was down here, he, he would send some help. Right, you might be tempted to think that this man's circumstances would create some regret, perhaps even some repentance in him. But you know, he never asks why he's experiencing this fate. Either he already knows or he doesn't care. But he never repents. He never humbles himself. He never confesses that he, in fact, deserves what he's getting. He never admits that he was wrong in the way that he lived his life. Instead, he begins to try to deal, to negotiate for favors. Abraham, send Lazarus down here to comfort me. Isn't that crazy? That he's not backing down at all? He clearly still thinks of Lazarus as someone who's beneath him, someone who's meant to serve him. Right? He's acting as he did when he was alive. He is trying to call the shots and, and use Lazarus for his own comfort. There's no hint of sorrow. There's no hint of repentance. Right? The only emotion we see out of him are, is discomfort and arrogance. But the man's request is in vain. Abraham calls him child there in verse 25. But it seems like a strictly formal relationship. Abraham tells him in verse 26, there is a chasm fixed between them. And that Lazarus cannot go between, even if Abraham was inclined to send him. The man doesn't argue with the facts. He comes to grips with the fact that his fate is sealed and unchangeable, that as Hebrews 9 tells us, it's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes judgment. But he does realize that it's not too late for his brothers. So in something like a thought for the well-being of others, there in verses 27 and 28, he asks Abraham, send Lazarus then to my five brothers who are at home. Warn them not to repeat my mistake. Don't let them suffer my fate. But then in verses 29 to 31, that request is denied as well. Abraham tells them, look, they have all the warning they need in the word of God, in the, the Moses and the prophets. Abraham says, look, if they won't listen to Moses, if they won't listen to the prophets, they wouldn't listen to Lazarus, even if Abraham were inclined to send him. Okay, so that's our story. That's the parable as Jesus told it. Now let's turn now and, and try to take some lessons away from it. As I said earlier, let's see three particular things. First, I think this parable is meant to remind us that there is a real heaven to be sought, and a real hell to be avoided. Now, as I said at the outset, we need to be careful. I don't think that we're meant to press this parable for a lot of details about what the afterlife will be like. I, don't, I just don't think that's the point of this parable. I'm not sure we're meant to develop a full-fledged understanding of the afterlife from this story. Right? It's tempting to do so because we have so few details given to us in Scripture. Right, so there are some people who read this parable and say, okay, 
So after we die, there's a place called Abraham's side. And that's where people in the Old Testament go when they die and they wait for Jesus to come back. But, but again, I don't, I don't think that's how parables are meant to work. It's not like people are going to be sitting up there in eternal bliss having conversations with people in hell talking about how it's going for them. I think it's better to understand that Jesus is using imagery. He's using stories here that were common in his day to illustrate his point. He's not really trying to give us a primer on heaven and hell. Instead, he's, he's doing the equivalent of giving us a story about what happens to you when you go to the pearly gates and you meet St. Peter. Right? We can say true things about heaven and hell from the Bible, and they are real and they are important, but I don't think we're meant to mine this particular parable for all these details. But it does seem clear that Jesus is operating from the perspective that we see all through the New Testament, that life does, in fact, continue on after death. And that there is a great separation between those who will experience joy and comfort for all eternity and those who will experience torment. Again, that's taught more explicitly, I think, in other parts of the Bible. And I don't think it's the main point of this parable, right? But it is the, the context that this parable assumes. And so, friend, it, there's really nothing more important for you today than to know your eternal fate. Right? For you to know that you will live forever with God in eternal joy rather than experiencing the torments of hell. And there just simply is nothing more important. There is nothing in this life uh, that will last into eternity. There is nothing in this life that is as important as knowing whether or not you will go to heaven or hell. The second thing for us to, to see here is the necessity of listening to God's word. Uh, look there in verses 27 to 31. We read there. The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So as we said, the formerly rich man, realizing that his fate is sealed, turns his attention to his brothers. And he says, send Lazarus. If they see him, if they see a visitor from the dead, they'll believe. Then they'll get about doing what they should have been doing all along. If they see Lazarus, they'll change. They'll repent they'll begin to show love to the poor like they were supposed to. But Abraham corrects him. Yeah, it's actually not that they don't know what they're supposed to do. It's not that they behave the way they behave because they, have a, they, they lack a compelling witness to the truth. Instead, the problem is that their hearts are hard. They have Moses. They have the prophets. That's enough. Right, just earlier, uh, a few moments ago, we looked at some of the places in the Old Testament where God clearly commanded his people to take care of the poor. They had all the information they needed, and they're culpable for their unwillingness to heed it. Right, the commands in the law and the prophets were clear. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, especially your poor and needy neighbor. This rich man and his brothers simply didn't care. And so Abraham tells him, look, no sign, no miracle is going to fix that problem. And of course, what Abraham says there in verse 31, right? 
Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That actually proves to be true, doesn't it? Later on in Jesus' ministry, he did raise a man from the dead. That man's name, coincidentally enough, was Lazarus. Right? This Lazarus was a real person, unlike the Lazarus in our parable. Right? This Lazarus, we're told in John chapter 11, had been dead for four days. There was no question about whether or not he was dead. We're even told there that his body had begun to smell. But Jesus raised him from the dead. In plain sight. Everybody saw it. Nobody disputed that it, would hap- that it had happened. And so surely everyone became one of his followers, right? Everyone believed in him after that. Well, John 11 tells us that some people did, but lots of people were angry. In fact, they they ran to the religious leaders and told them what happened, and the religious leaders responded, not by telling anybody that he didn't actually raise Lazarus from the dead. That, That was an established fact. There was no arguing with that. Rather, we read in John chapter 11, verse 53, about the religious leaders. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. A man rose from the dead. Nobody disputed that fact. And the hard-hearted just didn't care. In fact, they, they doubled down on their unbelief. Even more than that, there was another man who rose from the dead. Jesus himself. After his crucifixion, he rose from the dead and appeared to many people. But not everyone was convinced to change their lives. So in Matthew chapter 28, we read that the Roman guard that was at Jesus' tomb informed the the religious leaders about the resurrection. And we read there that while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So friends, look, just as Abraham says here, even someone rising from the dead was not enough for people who didn't want Jesus to be who he was. And friends, that connects us to a larger point that the Bible makes. And that is that unbelief, unwillingness to recognize Jesus for who he is, it's usually not the result of a lack of evidence. Our problem is not that God hasn't communicated to us clearly. He has revealed himself in the the world that he's made. He has shown us his his beauty, his divine power and nature in in the mountains, in the sea, in the creation of humanity. He's revealed himself perfectly in the gift of his son. He has revealed himself In the Bible, his word to us. This is the law, the Moses and the prophets that Abraham talks about in our parable. Friend, our problem is not a lack of evidence. But as Paul says in Romans 1.18, our problem is that we suppress the evidence that we have in unrighteousness. That is to say, we don't believe the truth because we don't want it to be true. We don't want to live in a world defined by God's truth. Because the consequences for us would be terrible. It would mean that we are not God, that we're not free to do whatever we want to do, that God is actually just in condemning us for our sins against him and against others. So friend, if you don't believe in Jesus, do you think it's 
fundamentally because there's not enough evidence? I wonder if Jesus showed up here right now. Do you, do you think you'd believe in him and turn your life over to him? Or can you be honest enough to admit that you'd probably find some way to explain it away? Because you just simply don't want that to be true. Over and over again in Jesus' ministry, we see that people saw a sign that pointed clearly to who he was, right? That he is the Son of God sent to deliver us from our sins. People saw those signs and they rejected him because he threatened their plans, because he was a, a danger to their desires. Friends, the ending of this little parable reminds us that your response to God's word reveals your heart. If you reject it, it's because you reject God himself. Of course, this is a major theme in Luke's gospel. Back in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, so this is the rich man and his brothers, the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. In the parable of the sower in Luke 8, 15, the good soil, that soil that receives salvation, we're told are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Just a few verses later in Luke 18, 18, Jesus warns us, take care how you hear. And then just a few verses later in Luke 18, 21, my mothers and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Friends, it really couldn't be clearer. This is what you get. Not because God couldn't do better. Not because he's out of miracles, but because, because this, this Bible is the very best. In the Bible, you have everything you need for life and godliness. You have everything you need in order to avoid the rich man's fate. Now the question is, will you listen? The third takeaway from this parable, I think, is the danger of wealth. Again, remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees back in just a few verses earlier in Luke 16, 15, speaking of their money. He says, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. I think that's what this parable illustrates for us. What people value is not what God values. What does the world value? Money, comfort, luxury, success, power, riches. Right, I think the default assumption of Jesus' hearers was that God must have favored the rich man. Right, that only makes sense. Presumably, if God likes you, he gives you purple clothes and, and linen boxer shorts. Right, if God's against you, then you have dogs licking your sores. But this parable illustrates Jesus' point that, in fact, it's not so. That God has a completely different value scheme that he treasures the one who trusts in him, the one who looks to him for his help and his hope. 
Friends, the problem with money is that it can cut us off from our sense of our need for God's help. It can make us feel self-sufficient and proud. It can feel like money is worth giving up anything to acquire. It can make us feel like we don't need God. That the world and all of the Lazaruses in it are, are here to serve us. But friends, what we see in scripture is that there's a connection between your relationship with God and the way you treat other people. Even the way you treat other people with your money. So when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, he responded this way in Matthew 22. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Or to put it in Abraham's words, Moses and the prophets. You see what Jesus is saying? Love for God and love for your fellow man. That's the whole law. That's, that's everything in this book. The whole revelation of God depends on those two things. And again, they are closely related. It's not like Jesus is saying, look, there's two things. One of them is love for God, and then there's this completely other, different thing, love for people. No, all through the Bible we see that your love for God will be expressed in the way you care for other people. In the terms of this parable, that's going to be particularly the way you use your money in, in respect to other people. But it's clear. Your relationship with God will be reflected in your care for others. If you won't forgive other people, if you hold resentment and bitterness toward them, if you're indifferent to their needs, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, it's because something's wrong with your relationship with God. I think that's the underlying reality in Jesus' parable. That is why the rich man is in Hades. Right? There is nothing wrong with being rich, and there's nothing particularly noble about being poor. But the rich man's problem is that he didn't care about Lazarus. And that shows that he didn't care about God. Right? If he had loved God, if he had understood that he too was completely dependent on God for all that he had, if, if he realized that he in the end was just as helpless as Lazarus, then he would have cared for this poor, wretched man. And I think that's where we connect back to Jesus' warnings about money. Again, the problem, hear me, the problem is not with being wealthy. Being wealthy does come with extra responsibility to do good to those in need. Right? We all have that responsibility. And the more you have, the more you are able to help. I think this is a particularly, particular warning to many of us. Right? An average citizen in Northern Virginia probably has greater wealth and ease than even this nameless rich man would have ever imagined. But the way of life in Northern Virginia is to spend all of your money on yourself. Right? We don't we don't wear purple clothes and fine linen, but we have plenty of things we can spend our money on to make ourselves comfortable, to make sure that we feast sumptuously every day. That means we often have nothing left over to help those in need. But friend, you can be sure that whatever your financial position, you will give an account for what you've done with what you've been given. And so ask yourself this morning, if we were to judge you purely on the basis of the way that you treat others, or to be maybe even more pointed in the terms of this parable, purely on the basis of how you spend your money with respect to others, what will we conclude about whether or not you know God? More important than our judgment, 
if God were to judge you, when the Lord Jesus judges you, do you feel like you'll be good enough to earn a place in heaven? Or can you see that your selfishness, your indifference, your pride and anger, they disqualify you from entrance into a world of perfect love? You see, the Bible tells us that none of us actually deserve what Lazarus receives in this parable. None of us are good enough for heaven, right? If we went to heaven the way we are, we would ruin it, right? Just like we've ruined this world. But I think if you can see that, then there's actually hope for you. Because Lazarus reminds us that God helps. That in his love, God the Father sent his son to take on human flesh and to save us from ourselves, to save us from our greed and our selfishness. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly Father. He loved perfectly. He loved God and he loved his fellow man. Based on the goodness of his life, he deserved all of the comfort and joy that we see Lazarus experiencing in this passage. But instead of enjoying eternity at his father's side, Jesus lived a life of suffering. He was betrayed by a friend. He was handed over to the religious authorities that that hated him for putting his finger on their love of money. He was condemned. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. And friends, there on the cross, Jesus took our anguish. He took our torment. He took the justice and the hell that we deserve. And he rose from the dead in victory over our sin and death. And now he's able to save you from the fate that you've earned. He's able to save anyone who will turn to him in faith. Anyone who will turn away from their sin. Anyone who will, who will leave behind their life of selfishness and pride and indifference to their fellow man. And put their trust in him. Jesus says, if you'll come to him, he will bring you into a relationship with God, a relationship that will transform the way you treat others, and ultimately, a relationship that will usher you into heaven. Brothers and sisters, this parable is an invitation to us, an invitation to come to Christ and be transformed. You see, the whole gospel message, really the message of the Bible is a story about a rich man and a poor man. The gospel comes to us and it takes Jesus' parable and it turns it upside down. Right In our our story, this rich, unrighteous man suffers for his sins, but the poor, righteous man is comforted. But in the gospel, the rich man becomes poor. In love, Jesus leaves the splendor of heaven to become incredibly poor for our sake. He took on poverty and weakness for us. But this perfectly loving poor man didn't enjoy the fate of the righteous. He didn't receive what Lazarus received. But on the cross, he was treated as if he were wicked. As if he were this unloving, unnamed rich man. Jesus took our hell so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be sure of eternity in heaven, so that we would never know the horrors and torments of hell, so that we could have our arms loaded with eternal treasure, so that we could be rich forever in the only ways that really matter. See, spiritually speaking, each one of us is Lazarus 
utterly helpless. And there is a rich man who can help us. A man so rich that you could say in him all the fullness of God dwells. And if that rich man remains aloof, if he stays at a distance, if he doesn't have mercy on us, we die. But in his great love, Jesus didn't stay far off. He didn't stay enjoying what was his and watch us suffer. But in love, he stooped. And he took our place so we could be rich. Friends, I think that's where this parable takes us. It takes us to the cross. Because it's there that we see just how badly we need God's help. It's, it's there by looking deeply at Christ's love and his sacrifice. It's, it's by building our hope on that truth. It's there that our hearts are transformed and we find ourselves full of love for God and love for one another. So brothers and sisters, let's come to the Lord's table together now. Let's come to be reminded of all that Jesus did and all that he gave so that we could be with him. Let's pray.